Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Olds. We've got Henry Newman and Shaheen Khan out there on the line. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great. Is this going to be a scintillating episode or an amazing episode? I think it's going to be both scintillating and amazing because we have a guest or guests. We do. I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro. So the name of the company is Mem Computing. So I got a briefing from Mem Computing a few months ago in a run-up to Hot Chips, actually. And I was really intrigued because they were talking about not using a Turing machine. Yeah. Now, of course, everything we know about computing has been resting on Turing machine and the von Neumann architecture. We've talked about the von Neumann bottleneck. And these guys seem to have a very intriguing way of addressing it that kind of maps into even quantum computing. So all of it required a sit down. And the thing that's cool is they get some fantastic results, not on every problem in the world, but on a subset. And they do it on traditional machines. And imagine how that's going to work. Through emulation. Yes, through emulation. And they're getting some shockingly good results. But rather than us talk about them, let's go ahead and let them talk about them. So I'd like to welcome our guests from Mem Computing. We've got Fabio Traversa, who is a co-founder of the company, and John Bean, who is a CEO of the company, to tell us more about what they're doing. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Glad to have you. So who wants to lead off and tell us a little bit about Mem Computing? Sure. This is John. I can do that. So Mem Computing is a new technology. It was invented at UC San Diego by Fabio Traversa and Max DeVentra. Fabio is our CTO and joins us on the call today. Mem computing is essentially a new breakthrough in computational performance. We're delivering the power of quantum computing with non-quantum solutions, and we're actually doing it today. Hmm. We have a software as a service model that's open, and we have uh, companies from many industries that are taking advantage of the technology now, being oil and gas, transportation, logistics, computational chemistry, and even mining companies as well. So. Delivering quantum without quantum or quantum performance without quantum, right? Exactly. How do you pull that off? (laughs) So underlying it, and Fabio can end up going into more detail on the science itself, but Fabio invented this new compute architecture that is essentially designed to overcome the latency that we experience with the von Neumann bottleneck in, in current computers. It's geared towards today's hardest computational problems. In mathematics, they're known as NP-hard problems, but they basically boil down to a set of problems where as the inputs grow linearly, the compute time actually grows exponentially. And that's part of this von Neumann bottleneck that actually causes that to occur. Mm -hmm. So Fabio and Max set out to essentially invent a new computer architecture, which ultimately will be a new computer chip. However, what we've found through testing by such institutions as the San Diego Supercomputer Center, that our technology in the software emulation of our circuit is already orders of magnitude faster than everything else that's out there. That's why we've launched as a software as a service, because this technology is able to already deliver the performance that 
truly is expected of quantum computing in the next 10 years, but we're delivering that performance today. Hmm. That's awesome. And what's the underlying hardware to do this software as a service? We support both CPU and GPU. We're pretty much hardware agnostic. We're just emulating our circuit on top of these machines. So it's like a machine on a machine. So the actual technology, the actual computers aren't really solving the problem. Our machine on top of these computers is what's really solving the problem. And that's why we're able to take advantage of the efficiency of our underlying design. How do you use the machine so differently than a standard von Neumann methodology? Sure. I should probably let Fabio jump in here because it's it, we're getting into probably more of the science and, and he can do a much better yeah. job than, than me. There's a lot to unpack here. When we talk von Neumann, we're also talking about a Turing machine. So we're talking about a different kind of a machine. And then it's also a question of intrinsic parallelism that is being exposed And is that sufficient to really approach quantum computing kinds of promise? And in your answer, remember that I have the technical acumen of a 10-year-old boy (laughs) and not not the smartest 10-year-old boy. So start there. Perfect. So the idea is the following. So the entire computer science has been based on the concept of Turing machine. So Turing basically introduced this uh, ideal model of computation that today we call Turing machine that is a very simple object. It's actually a mathematical object. Uh, it's very ideal. So this is composed of a tape in which you can uh, write and uh, read symbols uh, and uh, a table of instructions. And so uh, when you want to solve a problem, what you do is the following. You uh, set all these instructions in the table and uh, there is a head that reads on the tape a certain symbol that is written there. It goes to this table of instructions and the instructions say, okay, if you found this type of symbol, then you can move right or left and write another symbol or leave it blank. And so you do this sequentially while you are reading symbols until arriving to the end of this sequence of instructions and you arrive to the end when you read what is called the end symbol. So you you can stop your algorithm. So you understand that the Turing machine is an object that works sequentially and really it is not related to the problem that you are solving. So it is a general purpose machine. And the entire computer science has been based on this concept. Today, all our computers, they are based on the architecture that is nothing else than a realization of a Turing machine. So they are somehow interchangeable. On the other hand, what we have done has been starting from the foundations of the computer science. So we have said, okay, you have the Turing machine, but the Turing machine has this limitation that every time it has to read on the tape and go to the table of instructions and so forth. And it does this so many times. In fact, you say that an algorithm has a certain complexity based on how many times you are doing this go and forth from the tape to the table of instructions. So we have literally restart from there. And so we said, okay, let us uh, eliminate this uh, bottleneck, this uh, exchange of data. And so let us to idealize what is a, a computational memory, a memory that is capable of performing computation directly on itself. So it does not only store information, but it also computes that information. 
So starting from that, we have defined what we call today the universal mem computing machine. Okay. Now the universal mem computing machine is at the very center this computational memory. There's also other modules which you feed into the computational memory, a control unit that says, okay, now starts to perform the computation and the output unit that reads the output of the problem. Now, well, this is a very ideal object. It is not just that. We need more features to have these things that works properly and actually solves problems. So one of the important features that we have to add to this model is the fact that we need to embed the problem directly into the computational memory. So what does mean embedding the problem? If you have a problem with the Turing machine, you need to set the instructions in the table of instructions. Instead, for the mem computing machine, what you do is you formalize your problem. So probably you write some equation that define your problem. And then you prepare, literally, you reconfigure your computational memory in order to embed the problem itself uh, into this object. Now, how you do that? So you can think about uh, a computational memory like a network of uh, processing units that at the same time can store uh, information. And you prepare the connectivity, so you connect in such a way these uh, uh, processing units that we call mem processors in such a way that they are mapping the entire problem on uh, this uh, architecture. Now, uh, in doing this, obviously, you are creating uh, a special purpose machine. So this is the first very difference between Turing and uh, mem computing. Turing is a general purpose machine. Mem computing is special purpose machine. So every time you have to compute a problem, you reconfigure the machine. Now, the second thing that is extremely important is that when it performs the computation, it has to do with what we call intrinsic parallelism fashion. So what does mean this? It means the following. You know, for example, a GPU. Okay, a GPU is a distributed architecture, it's called, because you have many small processors, but what you do with the GPU is the following. You send data to these processors. Each of them will perform computation independent on the other processors, and then when they finish, they return the results to the memory. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, for example, how a GPU works. Sure. Instead, computational memory for a mem computing machine works differently because uh, all uh, these uh, mem processors that are involved uh, into the network, uh, while they are computing, uh, they feel the state of all the other mem processors. So basically what is happening is that the, this computational memory works uh, with uh, what we call the collective state of the machine. So each processor is not working independently, but is working collectively with all the other processors. So this is a main difference also between normal distributed architecture or phenomenal architecture with the main computing architecture. So do you implement this through compiler or is it a user level translator or how is it implemented? You can do this at several levels. In principle, you could implement even at compiler level, but we have found uh, ways uh, to make the life easier 
for the users. So, uh, for example, when you apply MEM computing machines uh, to solve combinatorial optimization problems, which is our main uh, application at the moment, there is a way that has been introduced since the 70s uh, in which you can uh, reformulate these problems and uh, you can uh, recast uh, in a format that is called uh, integer linear programming format. And there are uh, literally files uh, in which you can write down uh, these problems. This format is called MPS, has been introduced by IBM in the 70s. So you just write down your problem in a file, and then we have built an interface that just reads the file and prepare the mem computing machine exactly to solve that problem. And so it embeds directly your file into the machine itself, and then it runs and returns the results. And what's your long-term plan? Are you going to build an ASIC or are you going to use or think about implementing an FPGA? In this moment, as John said, we are just emulating the circuit, but we have in our roadmap. At first, probably we will uh, implement this ASIC. And you can do that easily because the components, uh, the electronic components of uh, our uh, current realization of a MEM computing machine are just uh, standard uh, electronic components. So you can think about uh, normal capacitors that, for example, are used in uh, DCRAM architectures or uh, transistor uh, CMOS technology. We use uh, exactly those types of electronic components. So we do not have uh, a real technological limitation to create those chips. The only thing that stopped us so far has been just uh, funding in the sense that we are a startup. And so since we have uh, already a software solution that works really well, has been easier going out uh, with software solution. But uh, from the technological point of view, there is not really a big limitation in fabricating these chips. Sure. The question was more about what our long-term plans were. And what I wanted to share is that while we have a software as a service model now, I mean, we're literally solving problems that take some companies weeks and we're solving it in mere seconds. And so the software is always going to have a life. We've released the SaaS to do integer linear programming. We're adding additional methodologies that companies use as well. Part of the other aspects of our technology is it's very applicable to artificial intelligence as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the key areas where we've done some preliminary testing and seen some very promising results is in the accelerating the training of a neural network. So neural networks in and of themselves are extremely fast to solve a problem, but it can take weeks to train and retrain a neural network. So one of our next areas that we'll go after is accelerating the training. So what is taking you weeks today will hopefully take you minutes and maybe even just seconds. Sure. Now the chip, ultimately we'll build the chip mainly because you can take full advantage of the technology. The performance where we're talking about doing things in in minutes and seconds via the software, with the chip, it'll be real time. So the chip is going to be very interesting for embedded systems. We've recently begun working with the U.S. Air Force Space Accelerator. And so we see things like autonomous drones and other planes and other things that need real-time performance, and they're going to need it on-premise, you know, on the system itself. We work with a lot of automobile companies that are supporting autonomous vehicles. And while the software is fast enough in many cases to give them additional capabilities that they don't have today, they are likely to also want to have the chip for the real-time performance as well. 
but there's always going to be a market for the software. Got it. Uh, one other thing about the ASIC development is we really see ourselves more like an ARM where we will design the chip solutions, but we'll end up licensing it to the semiconductor companies that want to manufacture it, let them manufacture it themselves and not really get into the fabulous semiconductor side of a business ourselves. ARM or RISC-V or both? ARM just licenses their IP. ARM doesn't build chips. ARM licenses it and everybody that else. That makes sense. Yeah, from, a, from the hardware perspective, but we'll always support the software. Right. And, and the software is more flexible just in general nature. And so we'll always lead with product development in software and then develop the ASIC behind it for those that may need the real-time performance. Right. Talking about embedding processing in memory and the whole concept of a processor in memory is also something that goes back several decades. In recent times, we've also heard that be translated to computational memory, which is the same thing. And I'm also hearing about computational storage. Really, the only difference I see between computational storage and computational memory is persistence. Could you square that away for me, what the differences are from your standpoint and is this the reliance on persistence or the reliance on lack of persistence that makes these things work or that's not even a parameter? The computational memory we talk about or computing in storage, they are different ways of performing computing, actually. We have worked also on computation in storage rather than computational memory. So computation in storage obviously relies on persistence because you need to store the data for a given amount of time. So you need that. Instead, the computational memory, like the ones that we are using that are actually the realization we call the self-organizing circuits, they do not really need too much persistence of data because the memory itself in these uh, objects uh, is dynamic. Since uh, you are computing at uh, the relaxation time of the circuit, so you are computing at nanoseconds level, and you do not need uh -huh. the memory itself remains stored too much time because it changes uh, at that rate. It changes at rate of nanoseconds, basically, because the entire circuit, as I said, is moving, is working collectively. So uh, you have the memory stored, but this is changing over the time. So really the persistent in our case is not fundamental at all. And that is because the way in which we use the computational memory is completely different from the computing in storage. What does that mean in terms of the applications that your technology would be suitable for. Is it back to what John was saying? Yes. With the exponential growth? So, in principle, you can do everything, okay? Because a universal computing machine completely equivalent to a Turing machine in terms of the problems that they can solve. So you can even, in principle, replace totally the architecture that you have today with a memory computing architecture. But that is not really necessary. So because for many things, we already know that our computers work really, really well. So what you want to really use memory computing is where the computers are not performing well. So and in these cases, for these exponential hard problems or are, uh, for example, training of neural network that in mathematical terms is a non-convex optimization problem. And so those are all very hard problems that today's architecture are not suitable for. And so we are giving an alternative to compute quickly. 
those types of problems. It's, it's something like what quantum computing is trying to do, right? Because think about quantum computing. You are never going to replace a computer, normal computer, with a quantum computer. A quantum computer should be, in principle, just a, a coprocessor for your computer. So should do tasks that your normal computer cannot do. So it's an help for today's architectures. It's not a replacement. Very good. Excellent. One thing I want to close with here that we didn't talk about, surprisingly enough, since we're all about high performance, is that for Port of Singapore, the task you did, logistics benchmark, took classical computers more than 70 hours to complete, but you did it in about an hour, which is very impressive. And then um, with doing a proof of concept for Canvas Labs, you did it in three to four milliseconds on a laptop, and it took about 10 minutes on a traditional computer. That's um, pretty sporty stuff. <laughs> and that's why this is so interesting. And let me throw in a little more about the Port of Singapore problem. So the original problem was a very small toy problem that was taking them over 70 hours. They also presented us with a significantly scaled up version of that problem that the estimates were it would have taken them 13 billion years to solve it. <laughs> that's um, a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. It's, it's not just grabbing a 13 billion years on what hardware for curiosity? On Shaheen's MacBook. <laughs> I think it, it's, it, well, that's, that's, yeah, no, it could have been the, it could have, it, it could be the fastest supercomputer. It, it, the real issue is of course, this von Neumann architecture yeah. it doesn't, that you could throw the most, the best hardware at it as you possibly could find. And you're still, let's say you could throw a faster computer at it and get in seven and a half billion years. Uh, <laughs> but, um, the, 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 that same one that, that was estimated to take billions of years with the current best-in-class technology. Fabio, what was the time it took us to solve that one? Less than uh, 24 hours with CPU. Yeah. With GPU. Wow. It was a matter of uh, minutes. That's impressive. So and, and wow. the clear thing about that is these, it's, it's that these problems grow exponentially in compute time today. And we've totally overcome that. And therefore, we're able to solve problems that would be considered impossible today. And we're finding actually that a lot of companies that are working with us now, they have a certain set of problems that are taking them hours, days, and even weeks to compute that are already formatted exactly the way that we solve them. So we're, we're completely compatible with how they solve these problems today. They send us the integer linear programming version of the problem in MPS format, like Fabio talked about, which is essentially how they're manipulating it internally. And we can solve those same problems in minutes or seconds. But what they're able to do once they start experiencing that is to step back and say, okay, some of these problems we're solving, we're actually not solving the whole problem. We're not including all the inputs. We're not including all the constraints sure. because we can't handle it. Sure. And so now they're actually able to step back, look at the bigger picture and present us with the bigger problem. And we're still delivering it in minutes and seconds. That's fantastic. And this has been very intriguing conversation. We're going to put some of your slides up on the description for this episode and, of course, have a link so people can get back to you. Can't thank you enough, John and Fabio. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sure. Thanks. And we will talk to you again soon and get an update on your progress. Fantastic. That would be great. Thank you. Well, that was a great segment. But speaking of great segments... 
Here's another one. Henry Newman's Why No One Should Be Online Ever. <laughs> Henry, what do you got this week? This week, it's the U.S. attorney, and I'll give you the link, issuing a statement about election security. And elections are coming up pretty quickly, so this is always an interesting for me. It's quite concerning, actually, what the gentleman's saying. So, But basically, West Virginia is having problems. This is the U.S. attorney in West Virginia. I know that's issuing a statement of election security in West Virginia is a concern. You know, if West Virginia is being attacked, obviously anybody can be attacked. Now, obviously, you know, we all know being one of the poorest states in America, they probably don't have a lot of money towards election security. But that also shows that this is a real problem if it's statewide and the U.S. attorney is getting involved rather than just you know, a single county or something like that. I applaud them for knowing they have a problem because I think in the cybersecurity world, you either know you're having a problem or you don't, but you always have a problem. Oh, yeah. It's good knowing that you have a problem. And so this is another reason why no one should be online ever. We should be voting online until we can really protect it. Yes. Very good, Henry. I was thinking, Henry, we should call your segment Control-Alt-Delete. <laughs> yeah, I'm also thinking maybe call it no internet access <laughs> and the yeah, reasons why well, you desire this state. Well, actually, there have been some examples of hacking without internet access, just so you know, Dan. There's Bluetooth. There's other communication. That's you true. You got Bluetooth on lots of your mouse. That's true. Through even electrical wires sometimes. Yeah. So a hermit up in the hills. That's what we should call this. So in, in a Faraday cage. Yes. <laughs> so another long-running segment is our catch of the week. You can hear the fishing boat in the background. What do you got for a catch, Shaheen? Argonne National Lab and the other DOE labs have been going after this AI and science and the impact of AI and science. They were doing these town halls. They have another report out that we will put a link about. They've been talking to some 350 members of the AI community. I was impressed with that number. I didn't think that community has that many members in it. But essentially what I'm seeing is that you've got simulation. Now you've got AI. There's exascale. There's quantum computing. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got essentially IoT as the label for things that generate data. And if you put 5G in the middle for the communication among them, and if you put blockchain for keeping track of it and the provenance, as Henry mentions, I think you've got the blend of all the mega trends in there that need to be synthesized. And that really is certainly all the buzzwords. Exactly. But, you know, as much as they're buzzwords, they're also a reality for technology practitioners everywhere. And synthesizing it really is a gap in the market. So I think that's an important thing. I agree. Okay. Henry, what do you got? I have two Intel patents that were announced in Sports Newsletter. I will put the link to the patents to them. I think they're really important for the next generation of how we're going to do I.O. One of them deals with erase block granularity for host-based caching. And what that it has to do with, in my mind, is the being able to have a race box and an NVMe over fabric world where you're mapping everything. And the other one is persistent caching data and page cache. Again, that has to do in my mind with uh, mapping things and having persistent caching storage and erasure coding. So I think these are really big issues. I'll send the storage newsletter page along with the patents worth a read. It really is important stuff. Excellent. Very cool. I have the catch of a week that may end up in a new feature 
for me, why AI is just going to make everything worse. <laughs> like the internet. <laughs> yeah. And Microsoft is working on an AI bot that can generate AI-generated comments, so fake comments, on news stories. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. And their rationale is that, well, you know, when people see comments, they make comments and get more active and engaged. Except that it won't be people seeing it. It'll be other, uh -uh. other AI seeing it. Other AIs. And this could drive propaganda. It could be used for commercial purposes. It's just kind of horrible and stupid. Can you see, see it becoming AI wars uh -huh. of how do you get to the truth? Yes. But also, increasingly, this is all just among a bunch of bots. The humans are not even involved. I mean, it's my yes. joke that I'll have my bot call your bot. They can do lunch. But this is just evil or can be used for evil. And these guys naively, either, well, maybe naively, believe that this is just a good thing because it gets more people engaged. It doesn't. It gets more bots engaged and it starts a whole nother front in the, the war to understand who's what, what's real, et cetera, et cetera. I might start a feature. I bet I could find a week. I bet I could find a story a week where AI is going to make things worse. Dan, I challenge you to do that. Okay. I accept that challenge. Well, I think we have the beginning of a whole new segment here. Perhaps. And on that note, let's go ahead and call this an episode of Radio Free HPC. Thank you for listening, all 15 of you out there. Thank you for following us on Twitter. We have 19 followers now, which is more than the actual listener count. <laughs> so I think that's outstanding. So we will come back at you in another week or so with another edition of Radio Free HPC. Stay mellow like Henry Newman, one of his favorite sayings. And thanks again for listening. Boom. That's how you do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening.